0: Good afternoon, Storehouse. Join me in standing for the reading of God's word. Mark 1, verse 14 to 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word of God for the people of God. Amen, you may be seated. Well, good afternoon. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, In the event that you didn't catch John, we're going to find ourselves in Mark chapter 1. We're looking at verses 14 and 15 today. As you open or load your Bible, in the event that you did not pick one up, we do have these Advent devotionals available to you. This is our gift for you uh, there are they are out in the lobby. Uh, these uh, devotionals were written by members in our church and so we want to provide you with content uh, as you dive into God's word, uh, as you discuss this in groups all so that you would grow and mature as disciples of Jesus. but with that being said, let's dig into our time. There was a bishop in the 19th century who once said, A Christian is a walking sermon. They preach far more than a minister does, for they preach all week long. This quote is very true, uh, and it pertains to the way we live out what we say we believe. What is equally important to what we're preaching is the message that you and I are receiving. In a nutshell, communication matters because your words matter. Therefore, whatever message you receive or preach to yourself is equally as important. So here are some questions. What is it that you are listening to? I'm not just talking about music. I'm not just talking about some of the conversations you are having. You and I are products of what we listen to, so what is it that you listen to? What is it that you preach to yourself, and what is it that you preach to others? Jesus did many wonderful things through signs and wonders, but they were all secondary to his primary mission to proclaim the message of the gospel. We'll address this later, but at the heart of the Christian faith is a message of salvation, and God has spoken this message to his people in a variety of ways. He has used the prophets to urge this message to his people. Each time this message has been encountered, it has been through the words of God. Therefore, as we look to our text this afternoon, here's what I want you to see. Here's your main idea for our time. Here it is. That is, the voice of God is most clearly heard through the Word of God. The voice of God is most clearly heard through the Word of God. Let me pray, and we will dig into our time. God, as we come before you this afternoon... My simple prayer is that your word would be sweeter than the taste of honey. God, I pray that you would quench our thirst with your grace, and that in everything that we do as we particularly examine your word, that we would be pointed to our need for Jesus. Therefore, this this afternoon, would you bless our time, and would you bless the study of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our Advent series that we started last week, we looked at the incarnation of Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at, or beginning today, I should say, we're going to be looking at the various ways in which Jesus fulfills the roles of what is called prophet, priest, and king. Once more, we're going to be looking at the way Jesus fulfills the roles of prophet, priest and king in our text this afternoon we will see how jesus fulfills the role of prophet not simply as another prophet but rather as the superior prophet over all other prophets because he is the subject and object of prophecy say that all three times fast Once more, we will see in today's text how Jesus fulfills the role of prophet, not simply as another prophet, but rather as the superior prophet, superior prophet over all other prophets because he is the subject and object of prophecy. The role of a prophet in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, deals with at least two basic requirements. There could be more, but for the sake of time, we're going to look at two basic requirements at the role of prophet. The first one is that the individual must be called by God in order to be a prophet or a messenger. The individual must be called by God in order to be a prophet or a messenger. On the screen, you'll see Numbers 12, and God says, hear my words, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. In short, here's what God is saying. Hey, when it comes to a prophet, I'm the one that calls them. How I do it, it's gonna be through vision, it's gonna be through a dream, I'm gonna to speak to them directly, but at the end of the day, I am the one who calls people to the office of prophet. That's number one, they gotta be called by God. Number two, their role is in the handling of God's word. Their role is in the handling of God's word to the people. Reading from Deuteronomy 18, God says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptually. You need not be afraid of him. So one more thing, or in addition to that, here's what God is saying. Hey, I'm the one that called people to prophets, number one. Number two, they only speak what I tell them to speak. If they're spitting out things that I have not told them, don't worry about them. Ignore them. They are not of me. They are not from me. So those are at least two basic requirements. The reason I want you to know that is because that's going to apply to our text. So when it comes to the role of prophet, they are called by God to be a prophet, and they speak or handle God's word according to what God says. In our text, we see Jesus living out the role of a prophet. But before we dig into that, we must begin at the middle of a story in verse 14. In verse 14, we see, now after John was arrested. So I want to give you a little bit of context as to who this John is, and then we'll dive into the rest of the passage. The John that Mark is referring to is John the Baptist. If you're unfamiliar with John the Baptist, he was Jesus' cousin, and he was called by God to make a way for Jesus. He carries out this calling of his life, uh, not as a prophet, but as an individual who proclaims a message of repentance, urging people that there is one who is coming, that there is one who is greater than him. And oftentimes, we can connect his call, John the Baptist's call, to Malachi 4. A lot of uh, cross-references today. So here we go, Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." What's happening here is that John the Baptist was much like Elijah in confronting and calling people to repentance. John the Baptist's job was to pave the way for the coming of Jesus. John the Baptist's job was to preach repentance because he was saying, there is one who is greater than me. There is one who is coming that you're going to have to look to. And so John the Baptist's ministry was him urging people to turn to Jesus, to repent of their sin, and to follow Jesus. Oftentimes, John the Baptist would say, don't look at me. Look to Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the one I've been telling you about. And as John has been doing this throughout his ministry, when we come to verse 14, at this point we learn that uh, he was arrested and his arrest eventually led to his tragic execution. By the time we read about this in verse 14, or by the time we see that John is arrested in verse 14, at this point in Mark, Jesus has already begun his public ministry in Galilee. And as the prophet, or as a prophet, we see Jesus doing two things— In verses 14 and 15, we see him called by God to be a messenger, and we see him handling God's word, right? Those are those two requirements that we talked about. So the question might be, do prophets exist today? No. The office of prophet does not exist. That doesn't mean that you and I do not have a responsibility to proclaim, Right? You and I have access to God's word so that we would proclaim his message. But the office of prophet does not exist any longer. Jesus closed that for us. So according to the author of Hebrews, here's what he says. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The office of prophet has been closed. So you got someone that says, my name is prophet. So and so, no it isn't. Right? <clears throat> the role of the prophet Is one that has been first called by God in order to handle God's word publicly. Once more, the role of the prophet is one that has been first called by God to handle the word of God publicly. And that's what we see Jesus doing in this text. And so that was a very general overview of the office of prophet. Now, through Jesus, we're going to look at the ministry of a prophet. Jesus defines the ministry of prophet when he speaks of being sent by the Father and speaking what the Father has given him to speak. Once more, John 12, this is verse 49 of 50. Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So let's go to verse 14. We read, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Here we see what a prophet does, and we land on one undisputed responsibility. The prophet proclaims God's word. We read that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel means the good news because that's what the gospel is. It is the good news of God saving sinners in and through Jesus Christ. The gospel is news that is rooted in the word of God, not our own opinion and not in our own advice. And that's a distinction that you and I need to know right now. The gospel is not motivational speaking. I'm going to read something to you. It's not up on the screen. I want to see your response. Here it is. <clears throat> it's vital that you accept yourself and learn to be happy with who God made you to be. If you want to truly enjoy your life, you must be at peace with yourself. If you didn't know, that was uh, Joel Osteen, right? <laughs> The gospel is not motivational speaking. It's not 10 steps to a more fulfilling life. It is not saying, well, God understands how I am, therefore I can continue to choose ignorance. If we take what uh, Joel Osteen wrote in that little piece that I just read, when he writes, you must be at peace with yourself, the thing about the gospel is that it teaches us that peace does not begin with you and I, it begins with God. And outside of God, we are actually at war with him. We are actually alienated from God because our hearts are not inclined toward him. You may say, well, that sounds really harsh. Well, the truth of God sifts through our hearts. People want their ears tickled. The gospel doesn't do that. So, the gospel is not motivational speaking. The gospel is not good advice. In other words, you may uh, be this individual that when it comes to talking with other people, you love the dreaded bees. In other words, don't be this, be that. Be this, don't be that. And oftentimes, words or language like that is rooted in good advice because ultimately what we're telling one another is if you just be this one thing, then you'll be good. Then you'll be rewarded. And that's literally what every other religion preaches, that if you, don't, if you stop doing this and you start doing this, if you stop being that person and you start being this person, then you'll be good to go. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. It is a message that is proclaiming that something is wrong with us. God knows this and has done something about it through Jesus. Therefore, upon receiving the gift of salvation, you sinners are made new. Everything that Jesus has has been imparted to you. Not on the basis of your righteousness, not because you met God halfway or because you think you took the proper steps forward, but solely because of his grace and mercy for you. It is in his nature to be gracious. This is the message that Jesus preached when we read that he came proclaiming the gospel of God this is the gospel he proclaimed rooted in the word of God imparted and infused into the hearts of sinners like you and me and apart from us having the joy and responsibility of imparting this message to anyone who will listen we must be exceptionally clear on what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. The gospel is that while we were still sinning, God entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, to live the life that you and I cannot live, die the death that you and I deserve in our place and for our sin. And raising from the dead three days later, he offers us the grace of salvation that you and I cannot earn. Jesus speaks with the truth and clarity and authority of God's word because not only does he want to see sinners reconciled to God, but because the truth of God sifts through people and cuts to our hearts. It separates those who are not serious about following him. This is the gospel of God. This is what Jesus came proclaiming. The gospel of God is not good advice. It is not motivational speaking. It is the word and work of God in saving sinners. Finally, we come to the urgency of a prophet. So we looked at the office of prophet, two requirements. We looked at the ministry of a prophet. That is, what do they do? They proclaim God's word, right? Now we're going to look at the urgency of the prophet. Urgency has to deal with the significance of what they have to say. Here's what Mark records. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, we're going to have to get a little nerdy to understand the weight of the first half of this message. Okay? Here we go. We're going to look at three sections. We're going to look at the word time, the word fulfilled, and the phrase at hand. So if you've got your Bibles open, you can follow along. When it comes to the word time <clears throat> in the Greek language, there are two words that mean time. First one is kairos, second one is chronos. Kairos, chronos, okay? Chronos deals with the actual time. So for instance, it is 4:39 p.m. That's chronos. It's dealing with the actual time on our watches. Kairos deals with the significance of a moment in history, right? So if you rewind the clocks back to 1944 and you look at D-Day, that is Kairos. That is a moment etched in history. If we look back to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, that is Kairos. That is a moment etched in history. Something significant pertains to this thing called Kairos. Well, when Mark writes the time is fulfilled, the word for time is kairos. And so what's the significance of the moment? It's what we looked at last week, that the word has become flesh. That's the significance of the moment, that God has entered into human history. The next thing that we're going to look at is the word fulfilled. The word fulfilled means the spilling over of something. So if you take an example of a cup, if you look at a cup and you fill it up with water and you keep filling it up, keep filling it up, what's, it, what's gonna happen? It's gonna spill over. And so what Mark is saying, <clears throat> when he uses the word fulfilled, he says everything in history has been filling up to this moment and it is now spilling over with the entrance of God into human history. Tracking? Now we got the thing at hand. So he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's what he's saying. The arrival of King Jesus in history. The incarnation of God in Jesus is here. Now, the kingdom of God is present. This is what Mark is telling his audience. The arrival of King Jesus has come and the time for repentance is now. That's how significant this moment in history is. See, Mark's audience would have understood that what he's trying to tell them is that the time to stop trusting in something else is now because of how significant the moment is, because of how significant this time is the question becomes, do we see the significance of this time, of this moment? See, the time to stop trusting in yourself for your own personal salvation is now. The time to stop turning towards sinful actions and turning to Jesus is now. The time to stop openly chasing after idols, not ignorantly, but willingly, is now. The time to stop trusting in your intellect or your eloquence or how good your Jesus jukes are is now. The time to stop indulging in your sin just because the lightning bolt hasn't struck is now now. And it is not because you've been lucky, but simply by God's grace, he has not handed you over to Satan. That time is now. Repent of your sin and believe in the gospel of God. That's the significance of God entering into human history. And so he proclaims this message of repentance and belief. And so let's look at repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is radically changing direction in your life. It's turning from something and turning to someone. Turning from your sin and turning to Jesus. I want to look at how Christians, not all Christians, but how many Christians treat repentance. One of the ways in which Christians treat repentance is only through confession. I want you to know there's a difference between confession and repentance. See, oftentimes Christians will admit their sin, and, hey, I've done this, and you're right, I did this, but there's no change. Repentance involves transformation. Repentance involves change. Just because you've confessed something doesn't mean you've changed. It can be riddled with guilt, but absent of conviction, so repentance is not only confession. One of the other ways I, I see Christians in the church handle repentance is that they cheapen God's grace. Well, I'll do this. You've heard the phrase, right? Like, uh, what is it? Uh, ask for, don't ask for permission. Ask for forgiveness. Right? Like, do your own thing, and then I'll say sorry afterwards. That's how Christians treat repentance, Man, I'm gonna do this thing and God's gonna forgive me anyway and it's gonna be good and eventually I'll go ahead and change it. Once I get my mind right, then I'll go ahead and change it. That's cheapening God's grace. Repentance is so much more. So for what I'd like to do in our time is slow it down. These are not steps to repentance, what I'm about to give you. These aren't steps. We're just dissecting what repentance is. All right, here we go. Repentance involves sorrow. That's the first thing. Yes, it is confession of sin. You know, confession of sin is where we are admitting that the charges brought against us are true, that I have sinned against God, that I have sinned against someone else. In addition to that, it also involves hatred for sin. It brings about conviction. See, oftentimes it could bring about guilt, and you're just, like, upset because you got caught. Not because you actually are sorrowful over your sin. Sorrow involves confession and hatred for sin. Repentance involves consequences. That's number two. Repentance involves consequences. Like, let's just be honest, there are practical consequences for when we sin against God or others. The trippy thing about that is that oftentimes Christians are surprised by consequences. And it's when they're surprised about consequences that they demand grace, because grace wasn't good enough prior. Oftentimes, when it comes to consequences, Christians get really upset because they think it discounts or it annuls their standing with God. Let me just be really clear. It doesn't annul your standing with God, but that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to the actions we've taken. So don't be surprised with consequences. When you hurt someone and they don't want to talk to you right away, that's a consequence Don't be surprised by it, and don't all of a sudden be a, a doctor of grace. Like, no, you should give me, and that's the problem, right? Where we're like, no, I demand grace. Well, what happened to God's grace? Why won't you give me that? And you just sinned against the Lord and your neighbor. There are, all, there are going to be consequences. The one who is repentant will receive those consequences. doesn't mean it's easy, but the one who is repentant receives consequences. Repentance involves change. In other words, there's change in the person, not just behavior modification where the root issues are masked with good behavior, but actual transformation of the heart that pours out into their life. Actual change. Once more, this is an area of repentance where I see a lot of Christians, and I'm not immune to this, where I see a lot of Christians buck up against change, because when you begin to adjust change with an individual, when you begin to address specifically their heart, oftentimes what happens is you receive uh, the, 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 the response, I know, I know I need to work on this, I know I need to change, right? When you say I know, that's not admission, that's arrogance, Like, no te hagas. Right? What I'm doing when I say, I know, I know, I'm trying to push you away. I'm trying not to take ownership of my sin. I'm becoming defensive because now you've addressed my heart, not just the sin, the behavior that I was doing. You're now addressing my heart. And so when I say, I know, I'm really just trying to shut you up. And you think you're cool because you're admitting it. No, you're just arrogant. And because of your arrogance, it ignores humility. It forfeits sanctification and growth. Because it's in humility where we become teachable. I'd like to park here for one more minute. I'm not talking to the church as a whole. I'm talking to storehouse. This is where I see many of us struggle, that when it comes to change, whether I've met with you or it's been like in community group style conversations, this is the part where it's like, no, I know, I know I need to do that. Yeah, I know, I know. Whether it's in friendships, whether it's in your marriage, this is where I see you push back the most. Because many of us want to have the last word. Rather than allowing God's word to be central, you want to have the last word. And so, when it comes to confession of sin, or when it comes to brothers and sisters addressing your heart, challenging you as Christians ought to do, encouraging you as Christians ought to do, when that ends up happening and you respond poorly, you respond defensively, what happens? They stop calling you out. In the context of your home, it may be that there is no such thing as a culture of confession and repentance in your home. Because if I call you on this, you're going to get really upset, or vice versa. I want us to be a church that values confession and repentance. Not just a church as a big hole. I'm talking about church in the little ones, right? You as individuals in your homes. This is the part, this is the part in repentance where we push back the most. After change, you have humility. Humility is where we recognize that we have sinned against God, that we have sinned against others and we recognize the depth of our sin. We recognize, man, what we did and how it hurt others. Humility helps you to recognize that the other individual may need time. Humility helps you recognize that the other individual may need to heal because of the wound you caused. Humility forces you To be still and know that God is who he is and you are not him. Humility forces you into a season of sanctification. Finally, on the notes it says reconciled. I prefer the word restored. I should have changed it, but I forgot. Repentance involves restoration restoration before the Lord. Not that you were forsaken. Not that you were cast out. But when, we're, when we don't repent, when we refuse to repent, we do cause some divide between us and the Lord. That doesn't mean, like, hey, man, he's, you're out. No, it doesn't mean that. But there's restoration. And hopefully, restoration with others. Repentance is rooted in a high value on God. God not a value on oneself. When we fail to repent, we choose idolatry. When we refuse to repent, we are choosing to exalt ourselves and make much of ourselves. Later on in our service, we're going to transition into communion. When you come forward, come forward as a repentant sinner. Repentant yet believing. Repentant and shaky, but repentant. If you are harboring sin, if you are harboring bitterness towards others and you have not repented, don't come forward. Go deal with that other individual. Repentance doesn't simply bring about better behavior. It results in transformation and communion with the Lord. It results in that peace. The Puritan Thomas Watson said said it this way, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So, Jesus proclaims this message of repentance and belief. So, let's look at belief or faith. Much like repentance, too often we undervalue what true or sincere belief actually is. For many, belief is simply knowing what God has said, what God has done, and what God does or doesn't do. Oftentimes, when it comes to questions centered around belief, for many in the church, the answer is, I know. Yes, I know that. I know. I would encourage you to look to James 2. And so James is writing to uh, uh, Jewish Christians, and he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. So he's saying, hey, you got some really good theology. You know a lot of good things. Like, you're not wrong. And then he adds this qualifier. Even the demons believe and shudder. So, much like repentance, let's slow it down and let's dissect what sincere faith is. The first first is that faith involves knowledge. The knowledge of what God has spoken, the knowledge of God's work through Jesus, the knowledge of who Jesus is. There is more to belief than knowledge, but this is where it begins, similar to what even James wrote. And this is where many Christians stay, park, land, and don't move. But faith is more than just knowledge. Now, you can know a lot of things. James just told you. Hey, you have some seriously good theology. You read that book one time five years ago. You got it. You're great. That's awesome. You have some good understanding. That's not all the way. The second addition or the second part of faith is that faith involves agreement. Agreement is where we recognize that the word and work of God is true. And and many of you land here, recognizing that the word of God, uh, that the work of Jesus is true, that you have been convicted by it and you are convinced by it. Agreement doesn't mean that you understand all of it, that it doesn't mean that you're going to know every single thing, but you can at the very least agree that the word of God is true. True. And so for a moment, let's park on agreement, because I want to address one concern. Now, when it comes to agreement, there's a difference between agreeing with something that we struggle to understand and simply not liking it and choosing ignorance, When it comes to encountering God's Word and we're struggling to believe something, there's still, uh, let's just call it, there's still work to be done. There's further reading to do. There's receiving counsel. There's asking questions. There's doing a little bit of hunting. That's a good thing. I think many of you put a lot of pressure on yourself to have to know it all, and you're good. You're going to grow in it. And sometimes you're going to come across something that you struggle with. Ask the questions, further your reading, put it on the table. That's the best way to grow and learn. But then there are others who will read something and don't agree with it, therefore they put it under the rug, and I don't want to talk about that, and that's not something I like, and I don't want to know more about it because it makes me feel uncomfortable. That's not agreement. That's also arrogance. That's us choosing ignorance. Ignorance rather than digging through reading through community through counsel rather than digging we rather cover it up agreement involves being convicted and convinced that this is true that doesn't mean you know it all that doesn't mean you have everything you need to know but in faith we're going to move forward and that's still not all of it so faith involves knowledge Faith involves agreement. Faith involves surrender. Faith involves surrender. It involves actually following through with the knowledge and agreement. This doesn't mean that you're not going to stumble. This does not mean that you know everything. But when you surrender, you are made teachable because you are most humble. And so when Jesus says to repent and believe in the gospel, he is saying that as you're convicted of sin, turn from your sin and turn to him. Trust in his words so that you would live out your faith. When we look at faith that way, that it requires knowledge, agreement, and then surrender, we can conclude that there's no such thing as blind faith no such thing as wishful thinking when it comes to belief in the gospel the author of Hebrews says it this way now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen and perhaps you're hearing all of this and you find yourself similar to the father in mark 9 who comes to jesus with his son and he's asking jesus to heal his son And he goes on and tells Jesus, I believe, just help my unbelief. Here would be my encouragement. In handling the word of God correctly, Jesus meets you in your deepest need. Jesus meets you in your deepest weakness. Not with condemnation, but with gentleness and a lowly heart. In our weakness, it is not only possible for the words of Jesus to heal, comfort, and strengthen us, but for Jesus, he delights in comforting and healing us and in strengthening us through his word. Repentance and belief are both a grace from God. One restores us, and the other one shows us that we are not him. The bishop I mentioned earlier said it well in reminding us that Christians are walking sermons. So what message have you received, Christian? What message do you preach? See, the gospel of God is rooted in the Word of God. Jesus wasn't simply another prophet, as many thought. He was the ultimate prophet who pronounced an end to all of our sin. In the Old Testament, the prophets were the mouthpiece of God to the people, speaking and charging them against their sin and calling them to repentance. The prophets heralded the forgiveness of God. Jesus, as the final and all-sufficient prophet, has done all of this for us. Jesus came not only proclaiming the word, but embodying it because he himself is the word of God. He entered into our world because of sin. He proclaimed our need to repent and to believe on him, and he proclaimed the forgiveness of sin. So, as we close Christian, do you long to hear the voice of God because there's so many messages so many messages surrounding you? My encouragement would be go to the word of God. Is your spiritual health dry? Is it weak? Is it struggling? Look to Jesus and go to the word of God so that you are renewed, so that you would be refreshed, so that you would be restored. Christian, is there sin that you need to confess? Someone that you need to address? Do it today. The time is now. Repent and believe. If you're not a Christian, I love that you're here. The voice of God is most clearly heard through the word of God, and I want you to know God through Jesus. You stand understood because God knows the curse of sin, but condemned apart from knowing God. Repent and believe so that you might know God today. Church, the voice of God is most clearly heard through the word of God. Let's pray. God, we long to hear your voice. And the beauty is that you speak to us loud and clear, gentle and lowly through your word. In fact, the word took on flesh in Jesus, meaning that you meet us where we are. We confess that we do not repent well. We confess that our faith isn't only weak. We confess that our faith isn't weak sometimes. We confess that we simply just desire to rebel. Therefore, God, we're asking that you would strengthen us by your grace to repent well and to hold fast to your word, not so that we would live arrogantly, but humbly. Jesus was not only the final and ultimate prophet but the ultimate sacrifice on the cross so that we would be reconciled to you. It is through Jesus and the message that he proclaimed that we have a relationship with you, Father. It is because of Jesus that both our sins are forgiven and that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, our great helper who convicts counsels and guides us to know and live like Jesus.